Good morning. The scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I only know in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide these three, and the greatest of these is love. This is the word of God for the people of God. Good morning, church. My name is Rob Lau. I'm one of the pastors here at Ebenezer. I want to thank all of you for being here today. I want to thank those who are joining us online for joining us around the world. God bless you and thank you. Today we are continuing a sermon series that's entitled Called, and there's an underlying premise to the series that is very simply this. All of us, 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 all of us are called by the living God. We have been given purpose by our Creator. We've talked about the fact that... Uh, through through Paul's ministry, we're starting to see some things that are true for our lives. So the, Paul's been our conversation partner in this series about calling. We studied his call story on our first week together on the road to Damascus. Last week, we journeyed with him on his first missionary journey. And today, we are going to experience his second missionary journey. So we left Paul uh, around the year 49 AD, having just come back from his first missionary journey. And in the year 50 AD, something happens. There's a question that arises in the church, the fledgling group of believers. The question is this. Are we really saved by grace through faith alone, or do we have to have a little bit of works thrown in there too? Namely, the question at hand was, can people be saved if they haven't been circumcised? And you think evangelism is hard today, church. (laughs) I just prayed the sinner's prayer. Why do you have a knife in your hand? Well, let me tell you. Thankfully, the church called the Council of Jerusalem and decided, no, 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 no. We are not saved by our works. Two phrases came out of that, that, that first council. Sola gratia, sola fide. By grace alone, through faith alone, are we saved? And the reason I'm telling you the story is it is a result of the Council of Jerusalem in 50 AD that that is what precipitates Paul's second missionary journey. He is sent out on his second missionary journey to tell people that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. And on his second missionary journey, Paul has a new partner 
This time, rather than Barnabas, he is accompanied by a man named Silas. So I want to invite you to take a look at the back of your bulletin or the screens, either one. There's a map that uh, you can check out here. This is a map of Paul's second missionary journey. You see Paul leaves the town of Jerusalem. He heads north to Syrian Antioch, and then he hangs a left at the northern edge of the Mediterranean Sea. He heads through his own hometown and then up into the region of Galatia, where Paul spent the vast majority of his time during his first missionary journey. We talked about the region of Galatia a lot last week. But it is in the region of Galatia that Paul comes across a young man by the name of Timothy. Uh, and the reason we know he was a young man is because later Paul's going to write a couple of letters to him. We know them today as the epistles of First and Second Timothy. And in those texts, he says, don't let anybody look down on you because you are young. That's still a good word for people like me today. Amen? Yeah. What? I, I, turned, I turned 40 this week, church. It hurts a little. And some of, some of you are, this is not in the sermon notes, by the way. Nobody else got this. I'm just telling you guys. It hurts, it hurts a little. Because some of you are thinking, well, he's so young. And some of you are thinking, he looks so old. Right? <laughs> anyway. So Paul finds this guy, Timothy. And Paul begins to mentor him. And then they leave the region of Galatia. They go through the, the, the region of Phrygia. And they get to this little town called Troas. And something happens in the book of Acts. The book stops talking about Paul and Silas and Timothy. And it starts using the language of we. Who did they pick up in Troas? Who is the author of the Acts of the Apostles? Luke. They found this young man in Troas, a young physician by the name of Luke. And they, they took him into their care and he followed them on the rest of their journey. He narrated the early church for them. You know, Paul is responsible for about half the books that are written in the New Testament. But if you were just to go by sheer word count, Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, he's responsible for one out of every three words in the New Testament in our scriptures. Paul found him and took him and molded him and cared for him. I want to tell you a story from my life. A number of years ago, the pastors of the two largest churches in the Virginia Conference of Methodism decided that they needed to start mentoring the next generation of clergy. And so, Tom Berlin and Mark Miller put together a group of young clergy. There were eight of them, and they invited me to come and be part of this group of young clergy. They called it, by the way, the Timothy Conspiracy. (laughs) They spent about two and a half years mentoring us. They taught us how to do things the way that they did things and what they found fruitful and what they hadn't found fruitful. It was a, a wonderful opportunity for them to exchange their, their gifts with us, to share their tactics with us. What I did not know at the time is that they were looking for their replacements. <laughs> so fast forward to June of 2016. My mentor, Mark Miller, called me and said, I'm coming down to Roanoke for annual conference this year. Would you meet me for lunch? And when your mentor says, can we meet for lunch? You say yes. So I said yes. And we went to this, this little restaurant area in downtown Roanoke. And I had, I had just gotten this hamburger. Church, it was a beautiful hamburger. I mean, blue cheese, bacon, toasted brioche bun. It was, it was glorious is what it was. And so we sit down and Mark wanted to talk to me, but I was excited about my hamburger. 
And I won't forget it. He, he said to me, he said, you know, Rob, I've been at Ebenezer Church now for 21 years. I'm entering my, second, my 22nd year. I've tried my tricks. I've tried them again. He said, I'm tired. He said, I've worked really hard there and I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm struggling. I think that maybe God is telling me that it's time for me to take the next step in my ministry career. And I was like, oh yeah, man, man, man good. Eating my burger all the time, right? <laughs> and then he said, uh, and I know that it's going to be the bishop that makes the appointment of the person that follows me and it's the prerogative of the, the cabinet, the bishop in the cabinet to make that appointment. But um, if they do ask me for a name, would you mind if I gave them yours? And I'd just taken a bite of my hamburger and I almost threw up all over the table. And you have to understand, it's not because I didn't want to come to Ebenezer. What pastor in their right mind wouldn't want to come to Ebenezer Church? Right? I was afraid. I'd seen him. He was so good. So good. And I said, I can't follow you. I can't be you. He said, you're right. You'd be a horrible Mark Miller. (laughs) But you would be a fantastic Rob Lau. See, here's the thing. There are people in this room who are doing, you're doing amazing work. Some of you are doing work that changes the world to the glory of Jesus Christ. There are people, I have the great privilege of having people in my congregation, godly people, who know that it is your job to help protect this this nation and this world. Thank you. God bless you for doing it. And that work is so important. One of the things that leaders know is that the important work that we are doing, we can't do it forever. There is a humility in good leaders that helps them recognize that the end of their tenure is coming. And so what do they do? Well, one thing they do is they impart technical knowledge to the next generation of leaders, but that's not all. Mark said, you'd be a horrible Mark Miller, but you'd be a great Rob Lau. You know what he was telling me? He was saying, I see things in you that you do not see in yourself yet, but I can see them. And here's my question. When is the last time that you intentionally sought out the next generation of leaders? When's the last time you gave them technical expertise that you possess? And most importantly, when is the last time you said, I see things in you that you can't even see in yourself, but I know you're going to change the world. Paul and Silas had not taken Luke under their care. We never never would have heard the story about a prodigal son. It's only in the Gospel of Luke. If they hadn't cultivated Luke, we wouldn't have heard about the road to Emmaus where their hearts burned within them. If it wasn't for Luke, we wouldn't have heard Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, and you too shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because Paul cultivated the next generation of leaders, our lives are better, and it is our task to do the same. So, They pick up Timothy and they pick up Luke. And together they leave Troas and they head across the Aegean Sea. They land there, as you can see, in the town of Neapolis and immediately go to the town of Philippi. Now, Philippi was a really important town in history. Uh, Philippi was named for Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. It was an important town historically in part because did you know that it was outside the gates of Philippi that a young man named Octavius, who would one day be known as Augustus Caesar, the first emperor of Rome. 
And his military partner, Mark Antony, outside the gates of Philippi, finally conquered the rebellion of the traitorous Brutus and Cassius, who had executed, murdered Julius Caesar. Philippi was an incredibly important town in history, but the single most important thing that ever happened in the town of Philippi happened at the hands of the Apostle Paul. The Bible said they entered Philippi and Paul began seeking out people to preach to and he came across a woman by the name of Lydia. The Bible says that a certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Thyatira, and she was a dealer in purple cloth. Stop there for just a second. I want to point out two things. First, in honor of this scripture, I'm wearing my purple shirt today. That's one. Secondly, in the ancient Mediterranean world, purple cloth was incredibly expensive. In order to have purple cloth, you had to cultivate river snails. It was the secretion of a river snail that gave you the purple dye. And you can imagine, it took a lot of river snails to dye something purple. Hundreds of them. It was labor-intensive. As a result of the intense labor involved in production of purple cloth, purple became a, a really expensive cloth. It became known in history as the color of royalty because only kings and queens could afford it. So Lydia was a wealthy woman in this town of Philippi. Paul and Silas preached the gospel to her, and the Bible tells us that she and her whole household were baptized that day. I tell you the story about Lydia because it's it's very important to history, and here's why. When Paul and Silas and their team crossed the Aegean Sea, they landed on a new continent, a continent named Europe. Over the next 2,000 years, the continent of Europe, the gateway to the Western world, the entirety of the West would be dominated by this Christian religion. And it all started with that first convert on European soil, a woman by the name of Lydia. Now here's the application piece for us. Because history is good and I like history and if it left my own devices, I'd, just, I'd talk about history all the time. But we, we have to apply this to our lives. How does this apply to our lives? Paul sometimes gets a bad rap and sometimes he deserves the bad rap, I think. There are some things he wrote that I wish he would not have written. Like, women should be silent in church. Some of the ladies in here just went, Psh! Right? I know you don't believe that. I heard y'all singing this morning. Right? Paul wrote, slaves should obey their masters. Man, I wish he hadn't said that. It was a statement that was used for generations, hundreds of years, to prop up the slave trade. There are things Paul said I wish he hadn't have said, but it's worth noting that the guy who said slaves should obey their masters also said in Christ there is no slave or free. The guy who said women should remain silent in the churches also said in Christ there is no male or female. That same man who gets accused often of misogyny converted the first convert to Christianity in the Western world. And her name was Lydia. And she started a chain reaction that would change the earth. Here's the point. I believe that there are some people in this room, I'm going to preach this entire sermon series too, about the fact that you are called by God. And there are a few people in this room that are going to cling to the life of quiet desperation that they have. But not most of us. Most of the people in this room can feel it in your bones. God has called you to something greater. God has called you to help change this world. 
And yet we are afraid to answer that call because we're concerned that we won't do it perfectly. Let me save you the drama. You're not going to do it perfectly. I don't do it perfectly. Paul didn't do it perfectly. My brothers and sisters, if we wait until we are perfectly ready to do the work of God, we will never do the work of God. Because it's in fact in the doing of the work that the act of Christian perfection begins. And so I want to challenge us not to be afraid of failing. I challenge us to be afraid of never having tried to live the life that God calls us to live. So they're in Philippi, and something else interesting happens. There's this slave girl who the Bible tells us is possessed by a demon. And she starts following Paul around and screaming at the top of her lungs, What have you to do with us, Paul, apostle of the Most High God? I just want you to put yourself in Paul's shoes. After a while, that would get kind of annoying, don't you think? So, a little bit into this, Paul turns around and in great frustration, frustration casts the demon out of this young lady. Good news, right? Good news for the young lady. Good news for the crowds following Paul. They didn't have to listen to her squall anymore. Good news for everybody except the owner of this particular slave girl because the Bible tells us that the demon inside the girl gave, gave her the ability to tell people's fortunes and futures. So when Paul cast out the demon, he also cast out the prophets, financial prophets. And it made the owners of this young lady so angry that they solicited Paul's arrest. And while they were, after having been arrested on their way to the jail cell, Paul and Silas were beaten by a mob. Now think about that. Just put yourself in their position for a second. You have left your home. You've been called by God. You've cast demons out of people. You're making converts left and right. And all of a sudden you get arrested and beaten and thrown into prison. What would be your state of being? I want to share Paul's state of being with you. Check this out. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Oh, come on. We talked last week about joy. And about the fact that joy is not a byproduct of our, our, our physiological surroundings, of our environment. Joy comes from being in the center of God's will, God's purpose for our lives. And so if we're in the center of God's will or purpose for our lives, hell can erupt all around us and we will still be people of joy. The same thing is true with our peace and our praise. Paul and Silas were saying, it doesn't matter if we're converting a hundred people a day or sitting in prison, as long as our lungs have breath, I'm going to praise the Lord. Paul writes this beautifully, this whole sentiment later, when he writes back to the town of Philippi. To many of the same people who had beaten him and arrested him and thrown him into prison, I want to show you what Paul says to those same people. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, thanksgiving, make your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God that surpasses understanding. It's a peace that doesn't make sense. There's a word for that. Crazy. God's people, when we find ourselves in the middle of even a trial, even when the ship is going down, we can be people of joy and peace and everybody else will think it is crazy, but it's the truth because those things do not come from the environment around us. They come from being in the center of the will of the living God.
being directly in the midst of our purpose. The byproduct is joy and peace that surpasses all understanding, but that's not all. The next thing that happens is equally as engaging. Around midnight, an earthquake takes place. And all the jail cells' doors pop open. I want you to note something. The prisoners do not attempt to escape. Why? Because Paul and Silas told them not to? No, the Bible doesn't record it that way. Here's why I think they didn't try to escape, even though they could have. They had finally found their freedom, and it had nothing to do with the jail cell. They were ready to be free, even if it was in prison, rather than in bondage on the outside of those prison doors. They saw something in Paul and Silas. And the prisoner, the prison guard comes in, and he sees the doors hanging open, and he takes out his sword. He's about to kill himself, because he knew, he knew that if the Romans found out he'd lost some of his prisoners, they would torture him and then kill him. He was going to take the easy way out, in his estimation. And Paul says, stop! Don't hurt yourself! Don't! We're all right here. You know the next thing that jailer says? What must I do to be saved? The joy and peace that God gives us in the midst of a storm, it's not just for us, it's for the people around us who will see us going through that trial possessed by joy and possessed by peace and they will say there is something crazy beautiful about that person. So, Paul and Silas eventually leave the town of Philippi and uh, they head to Thessalonica, which is an important town because soon Paul is going to write some letters back to the, the, the church in Thessalonica. We know them today as First and Second Thessalonians. I just want to tell you this one thing that happens in Thessalonica. Uh, Paul and Silas preach the gospel. People are, are mesmerized by what they say. They are moved by it. They respond to the gospel. But the leaders of the community are afraid that, that this whole gospel thing is going to unseat their power. So they stir up a riot against Paul and Silas. Do you see a trend emerging here, church? And, and it just it just got me thinking. I wonder if I have ever lived my faith with such conviction and power that it inspired a riot. Too strong? All right, let me try again. Have we ever lived our faith with such conviction and power that it was revolutionary? Still too strong. Okay, one last shot. Have we, have I, lived my life in such a way that anybody would even notice that I'm a person of faith? And there may be some people in this room who say, you're right, pastor. We need to go out and tell people that they need to get saved or they're going to hell. No! There's an entire generation of Christians who have been trying to scare people into loving relationships with God, that doesn't make sense. You can't scare someone into a loving relationship. Our job isn't to scare people. Our job is to help them experience love, like the way Paul teaches us how to do, because he he leaves the town of Thessalonica and he goes to the town of Athens. Athens was the center of the ancient Greek worship world. They had statues to all the gods, all of, I mean, every god you have ever heard of or imagined, they had a statue to that god. In fact, they were so paranoid about it, they were afraid they might have missed a god, so they created an altar to an unknown god just so as not to upset that god in the event that they had forgotten that god. So now, imagine what Paul is thinking as he's walking through this city of Athens and he sees all these idols everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. Paul had a couple options. He could have condemned them. He could have said, you bunch of heathens. 
You better turn or burn. Get right or get left. He could have gone that direction if he wanted to. You know what he does instead? He pays attention to the environment around him. He says, I notice that you have an altar to an unknown God. Let me tell you about him. His name is, his name is Yahweh and his son is Jesus Christ. Paul speaks in such a compelling manner that these people invite him back to preach again. Here's the point. When we are sent out into this world, and we are, we're sent out into this world, and the byproduct of our work may be so disruptive to the current power structure that amazing things happen. But that doesn't mean that we go out and say things that are incendiary. Paul went to Athens and he could have condemned those people. He chose instead to connect with them. To connect with them, to connect them to God, and to connect them to the church, God's people, the people of Christ. How how is the tone of your evangelical way? Is it a tone of condemnation or a tone of connection? We're going to move on now to the city of Corinth. And after Paul is in Corinth, he actually goes down to Ephesus. And I'm not going to talk about Ephesus today because in his third missionary journey, Paul spends almost two years in Ephesus, so we're going to cover it next week. Uh, I want to spend some time talking with you about Corinth as we conclude. But before I do that, I want to invite you, around you somewhere, there should be one of these catalogs. It's entitled a Catalog of Callings. If you don't have one near you, if you would raise your hand, we will get one to you. And I want to invite you, as you open it, to turn with me to page 6 of the ministry catalog, a page that should look familiar to you because a couple weeks ago, as we began this call series, we said God has called every single one of us, and in order to help us answer our call, God has given us gifts. And so we asked ourselves the question, what are our gifts? And we used a tool, a gifts inventory, to try and discern what our gifts are. This is the last page of that document. If you're following with us online, uh, you can find this. Our, our moderator is going to prompt you to a place where you can find this document yourself. Uh, I want to invite you. The one thing I, I asked you to do, one of the things I asked you to do was to uh, remember what your top gifts were. If you wouldn't mind taking a moment and circling your top gifts. If you haven't filled this out yet, the good news is the last couple pages of this document is, uh, is that spiritual gifts inventory. So you can take this home with you and, and fill that out. But for the rest of us, I want to ask you to circle your top spiritual gifts. And then, I want to invite you to look down at the bottom of the page, six. And you'll notice that every spiritual gift in the inventory is assigned to one of four categories. All of our spiritual gifts fit into one of these four categories. Some of our gifts actually fit into multiple categories, just so you know. But those four categories are discipleship, service, healing, and leadership administration. Discipleship, service, healing, and leadership administration. This is the connecting point. You see, this is a catalog of all the ministry opportunities that are available here at Ebenezer Church. All the ways that people can fulfill their call here at Ebenezer. And the way we have organized the catalog is according to those four categories. Discipleship, service, healing, and leadership administration. So here's what I'd like to invite you to do. This is your catalog. It's yours. You take it home with you. It is yours. And I want to invite you to particularly pay attention to what your top spiritual gift was 
and the category that it connects with, and then to read the ministry opportunities associated with that category. In two weeks, we're going to have an opportunity to respond to God's call on our lives. Here's what I know. I know that every potential calling in the world is not contained within this 14-page catalog. But I also know this. If Ebenezer Church is going to keep changing the world, we're going to need all hands on deck to do it. I believe that everybody in this room has a role to play in the light that Ebenezer can bring to the Stafford community. This is why I want to conclude with our time in Paul's time in Corinth. So Paul goes to the city of Corinth, and uh, it, was a, it was a coastal town. The ships came in there regularly, and as a result, there was a huge slave trade and a large prostitution center in Corinth. Paul leaves, he goes back through Ephesus, he goes back home, and he writes a letter back to the church of Corinth. And there are some things he offers to try and correct them a little bit, but the tone of his letter is not about you're, you're bad and you should be good. The, the, the centerpiece of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth is found in chapters 12 and 13. And in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, everybody, everybody, everybody has a gift. Some of us are called to be apostles and prophets and pastors and healers. And some of us are called to speak in tongues. What does that mean? It means that we have the capacity to speak a language we've never actually learned. Or we have the ability to speak cross-culturally or cross-generationally to people. Paul said there are all these many, many, many gifts that are available. And everybody's got some gifts. But then he says, it would be inappropriate for me to say, because I have this gift and you have that gift, I am better than you. He uses the analogy of the body. He said, the hand really shouldn't say to the mouth, I have no need of you. Because after a while, the hand is going to need some energy. Where is that coming from? From something the mouth ate, right? We are connected. We are connected. In order for the body of Jesus Christ to function well, we all have to do our part. We have to respond to our purpose, our calling in this world. And Paul says, my calling is not more important than yours, and yours isn't more important than mine. We all need one another to do what God calls us to do, which means that it's possible that the kneecap of Jesus Christ is in this room right now, church. Hallelujah. Amen. That's the law. That's the biggest anybody's laughed at that joke all morning. I'm probably going to take it out for the six. So Paul goes through this dialogue about the fact that everybody is gifted and, and we need everybody to do what they are called to do. And then things get really interesting. Paul said, but if you really want to know, if you really want to know what the greatest gift is, well, then I will show you the most excellent way. He said, because I could speak in the tongues of men and angels, but if I have not love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. He said, I could have the gift of prophecy. I could fathom all mystery and all knowledge. I could be able to say to a mountain, get up and move into the sea. But if I don't have love, I am nothing. Maybe my gift is giving. I could give everything I possess to the poor. I could surrender my very body to the flames. But if I don't have love, I gain nothing. He goes on to describe love. He says love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angry. It keeps no record of wrongs. Eventually he goes on to say, love never fails. He concludes this letter about love. By saying, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Why is that? Well, there will be a day that faith will have passed its expiration because we will no longer need it. We will see face to face. 
There will come a day that we don't need hope anymore because all of our hopes will be realized. And on that great and final eternal day, the one remaining law of the kingdom of God will be love. Paul does amazing things on his last journey, his second journey. Amazing things. He mentors young people. He has peace and joy that surpass understanding. He starts riots, not because he meant to do harm, but because he was faithful. But if we only remember one thing from Paul's second missionary journey, learn this. All of us have gifts, and they're different. But we are unified by the single greatest gift of all. It is the gift of great love. And God has given it to you and to me so we might share it with the world. Thank you so much for being part of our walk through Paul's second missionary journey. I hope you will join us next week as we tackle his third missionary journey. But until then, would you pray with me? Gracious God, I thank you for these amazing people. These, your beautiful and beloved people, those of us, all of us who have been called by your holy name. We know, oh God, that Paul's story is a powerful story. There is so much to learn and so much to know and so much to understand. We give you thanks for those who have mentored us in the past, just as Paul and Silas mentored Luke and Timothy. We give you thanks for the joy and peace that you give us in the difficult moments, the storms of our lives, and the ways that those not only sustain us, but can be witnesses to those around us. We thank you, O God, for the opportunity not to condemn, but to connect with those in our path. But above all things, We thank you that you have already shared with us the marrow of the kingdom of God that is coming even now. It is relentless, never-ending love. If we can remember nothing that Paul has done, help us to remember that we are called to be people of love. Radical, crazy, beautiful love. In the name and to the glory of Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.